Hello and welcome to the Best Boys Podcast. I'm Best Boy Dan. And I'm Best Boy Justin. And uh, happy Pride Month to Yay. everyone. Or it's There's a new name for it, I think, too. I don't remember. Um, but yeah, we're here to celebrate Pride with a little discussion on what makes up Yuri and Yaoi anime. But first we're going to get into a little bit of banter followed by some anime news. Yeah, strap on in and let's get to it. Um, and first off, I just wanted to talk about, um, we had talked, we discussed in our spring anime episode that there were some shows that were going to be coming out later on in the spring season that we would talk about when they came out. And one of those shows is out. We did talk about, uh, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex 2045 Season 2. Um, it is out. It is back. Um, I will say that they did adjust, um, their CGI a little bit. It's not as overbearing as it was in the first season. Um, so either they dialed back on it a little bit, or it's just they got better at it. I don't know. Uh, all I do know is it's less off-putting, but it's still, you know. Yeah. It's still what it is. This um, is on Netflix, right? This is on Netflix, yeah. And uh, the whole thing is out. They released the whole thing all at once, so you can go binge it if you'd like. Um, the story is great. I will say that much for, you know, as, as disappointing as the animation is. Uh, Ghost in the Shell always has a very compelling and interesting story, and they definitely deliver this time around. Uh, I'm about halfway through the new season, uh, and I really enjoy it. Um, so yeah, if, if that sounds like something you're interested in, have at it. Um, and the other thing I wanted to kind of celebrate a little bit is that Kukuru's Dones Island, the new Gundam movie, is out in Japan. Yeah? Yep. Its release day is today. Well, no. tomorrow, but it's tomorrow already in Japan when we're recording this. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it does. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, people are excited for it. I watched, like, the full... They released, like, a long-form trailer for it, and the animation looks really, really good. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited for it. Hopefully it comes to America soon. It's interesting. I just read today that uh, the Jujutsu Kaisen movie just, like, ended its run, and it uh, landed ninth place for Japanese animation grossing. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So I'll be interested to see if uh, the trend continues with uh, Kukuro Stones Island. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, we're going to keep an eye out on that one for when it gets North American release. Um, as for what I wanted to discuss, I know that you also watched Vampire in the Garden, yes, um, which kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> on our radar at all. It didn't come up in our search of and things that we're, were spring we're anime. Like pretty on the ball with this, but yeah. I mean, I guess it probably would have been classified in like an OVA or something. Um, but essentially it's, uh, a five episode mini series from yeah, Studio Wit. Yeah. Um, the music is phenomenal, but it's basically this future world where vampires and humans are at war with each other. It's a little bit of a, you know, Romeo and Juliet, uh, you know, star-crossed love thing going on, mm -hmm. um, but the world is just, it's particularly interesting. I think they do a nice job of building it over the course of five episodes and telling a nice, complete story. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoyed this kind of form of storytelling. It was a real pleasure to watch. Yeah, it was really interesting. It, it's uh, it's uh, a Yuri plot, too. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's that. It fits Although, in real well with this episode. Yeah, so it worked out pretty well in that regard. Um, and I just think uh, it had a really compelling story. That's what kind of drew me in. Um, and the animation was gorgeous, of course, as well. Yeah, Wit, Wit is crushing it. They also did um, 
the oh god, what was the one with Boji? Oh, Ranking of Kings. Ranking of Kings. Um, they've done a ton of amazing things. Yeah. Um, so super excited about that. We watched it. It was really good. Um, definitely check it out if you have access to Netflix. Uh, it's definitely worth your time. Uh, but with all that being said, I think this is probably a good time for us to check in with Studio WEB for some anime news. We're just hopping into it this week. We're going right into it. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting uh, news this week, and and something I don't even have on the list, but it just came to my attention. I guess it's even breaking. Breaking news. news. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is they're making a live Netflix is making a live action Yu Yu Hakusho series that's coming out in 2023. <laughs> It's too bad it's going to be terrible, but yeah. I would love for for that. I think that and, like, Tokyo Revengers would be two live-action shows that I would actually really love to see. See, I allowed my hopes to get up just the tiniest bit for Cowboy Bebop, yeah. and I was betrayed, so... Yeah. Now we're, we're closing up that lockbox <laughs> that is my heart. No one will ever get close again. Yep. Um, I'll still watch it. Uh, but getting into my real news segment, uh... I want to talk about uh, an interesting little uh, purchase that happened. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's Public Interest Fund, chaired the kingdom's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, announced that this week they had purchased a 5.01% stake in Nintendo. The Financial Times newspaper estimated a U.S. $2.98 billion value, value for the purchase. Based on Nintendo's own listing of its shareholders dated September 30th, 2021, uh, PIF would become the second biggest outside shareholder in Nintendo after the Master Trust Bank of Japan uh, Limited. Uh, Bloomberg, however, reported the investment would make PIF the fifth biggest shareholder, citing its own data. The PIF previously disclosed in February it purchased more than 5% of shares in Japanese developers' caps. Capcom and Nexon, and also shares in other game developers and publishers such as Activision Blizzard, Electronic Arts, and Take-Two Interactive. Wow. So, I, I think this is a particularly interesting story, and I like to kind of bring some of these corporate interest pieces to the podcast, because this means something to you, the end consumer, right? right? If... Saudi Arabia has a 5% stake in Nintendo. They have a say in what happens. They get to vote with the company. So some of the ethos of the investors can boil down to the customers. And this is the same, you know, fund that's like chaired by the person who had Jamal Khashoggi killed mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago. So it is important to kind of know where the money is coming from and what is happening behind the scenes in the stuff that we support. So I'm not bringing it up to, to like, you know, say don't, you know, play Nintendo games or whatever. This is uh, Saudi Arabia's um, investment fund invests in all sorts of things, uh, especially in America, um, down to Hollywood movies, too. So just an interesting thing to keep your eye on. Yes. It's almost uh, like having enormous corporations with more money than God was a bad idea. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, though, I have kind of a, a 
story on on the other side of this. I think you'll like this one, Best Boy Justin. Yeah. Uh, The workers of manga publisher Seven Seas Entertainment announced on Monday uh, that they had formed a union called the United Workers of Seven Seas, or UW7S. Yay! The union is working closely with the Communication Workers of America. The group seeks to negotiate better working conditions for Seven Seas employees and freelancers. According to the union, the publisher has grown from 10 employees in 2018 to over 40 staff members in 2022. The union's new Twitter account and website state that Seven Seas workers are overworked, underpaid, and do not receive benefits typical of the publishing industry. The group is demanding equitable pay, health care, and paid time off, reasonable workloads, fair deadlines, and a well-organized digital office. Outrageous. I know, right? How dare they? The absolute <laughs> gall of these the human beings (laughs) on thursday uh uw7s stated on twitter that seven c's had informed the union that the company would not voluntarily recognize the union uw7s said that as a result the matter would go to an election with the neighbor uh national labor relations board um seven c's released this following statement We appreciate having the opportunity to give our view regarding the unionization effort at Seven Seas Entertainment. We respect the rights of our employees to choose or not choose union representation. While we have requested by a number of employees to voluntarily recognize the Communication Workers of America as legal representation without a National Labor Board Uh, relations board conducted election we have decided to respect the right of all eligible employees to vote on this issue since unionization would affect more members of the staff than those have already come forward an election would ensure that everyone has the opportunity to learn about their rights and the details of the process before they cast their vote through governed process. We have notified the neighbor, National Relations Board, I keep calling it neighbor because National Labor, mm-hmm. <laughs> National Labor Relations Board that we prepare to move forward with an election among an appropriate unit of employees and we will of course abide by the outcome of the election. Now, I think it is also important to note that UW7S added on Twitter uh, that 32 out of the 41 eligible workers of the company are now in favor of the union. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope they bring it to a vote quickly and that they don't do any skullduggery oh, in no. the meantime. I, I, in, <laughs> in America? No way. In a, in a union vote? So, again, this is this is something we should dig a little bit into. Yeah. Um, also, like, I assumed that Seven Seas had way more employees than that. I don't know why. Like, when they, <laughs> well, when I this saw has they to be the 40... American division of right, this. Right, but still, like, I would have thought they'd have, like, 60. Sure. Um, but, you know, they've, they've essentially doubled. They can hire know? me. <laughs> so, so it is important to note, because I, I did read the whole Seven Seas statement, and it's important to kind of pick out little bits of that. They're not recognizing the union effort. They're forcing a vote. And the intention of this is simply because they don't want a union, right? No. Cor- companies don't want unions. Otherwise, they would just recognize them as a union. Yeah. Right? So they're going to make them jump through all of the hoops. They're going to make them uh, have the vote. And in the meantime, they're they're going to probably have closed-door, sit-down meetings where they try and talk about how unions don't 
collectively negotiate for the employees. They're only interested in collecting your dues and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And really, it'll disrupt how they're a family <laughs> and they don't understand the the company like values that well, that Seven Seas has. Well, also they they like that's like kind of the the one part of it. But like a lot of times, what these types of negotiations entail is basically like trying they're not they uh, they know that the workers want a union mm -hmm. what they're trying what they're going to try to do is intimidate and scare the the workers into voting no they're gonna like they're gonna try and they t technically can't do this but there's no way to really <laughs> stop them yeah um they're gonna try to say like you know if we have a union well we're gonna have to have layoffs because we can't afford everyone or they're gonna say oh well you know if we you know we're gonna have to outsource and you know they're basically mm -hmm. gonna try to do everything they can with the time that they have before the vote to intimidate and scare and like try to um, basically force them to vote no. Yeah. Uh, because obviously. It's, it's exactly what happened with Amazon in Atlanta. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, good luck to UW7S. Um, I hope you guys get your union. I hope you get all the money. Yeah, the um, best boys and... are rooting for you. We hope that you get paid time off yeah. and you know comparable treatment as standard across the industry yeah also if you guys need more people hire me yeah you know, i'll do i'll do whatever <laughs> except for be a scab yeah that's the one i won't do that but i won't do that exactly um all right so i got a speed round let's because there was like a bunch of announcements of things starting or restarting or going away and i just want to hit them all really quick all right let's get the, let's get the the the, the race we go beam 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 so up first we got appropriately uh speed racer is getting a jj abrams adaptation on apple plus <laughs> um Please, everyone go watch the Wachowski sibling or sister's version of it. Yes. Um, up next, Star Wars Visions 2 coming to Disney Plus. More visions than you can handle. Yeah, you know what? I'm down for more anime Star Wars. Yep. It's uh, telling in more interesting corners of the universe than a lot of the other properties. Outstanding. Uh, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet get a November 18th release date. Those are new colors. Yep, I'm going to play them. Um, though the legendary is just... <laughs> They're like weird dragon motorcycle combination. It's Perfect. like a dragon and a motorcycle had a baby. Love it. <laughs> um, also, I, I told Best Boy Justin about this earlier. There's a Pokemon that's a little pig called Lechonk. Lechonk. Which is the best name. Um, it's French for little fat boy. <laughs> uh, Rent-A-Girlfriend live action season starts in July. Cool. Yeah, it's uh, that's interesting. Um, Hunter Hunter is coming back. The manga has been on hiatus since November of 2018. Yay! That's like almost four years. I'm so it's a long that's time coming back. I really want to uh, pick that up again. Uh, My Hero is ending this year. They're in the final arc. Yep. Um, and then finally, uh, the Fruits Basket Prelude movie is going to be airing in the United States and Canada June 25th. 28th and 29th both subtitled and dubbed versions go out and see it the trailer just dropped check it out on youtube it looks pretty dope awesome well if that's it for your speed <laughs> round done. You're, you're done um I'm spent all right cool well i have a couple things that i want to talk about before we move on to the meat and potatoes so um the first thing that i want to wash talk your is, news over me yes the first thing i wanted to talk about is also a little bit of business news um 
we have uh, announcements. Sony Media subsidiary Aniplex, its Cloverworks Animation Studio, and Production IG sister company Wit Studio, along with publisher Shueisha, have announced that they are jointly establishing a new company called Joen. Uh, the company's objective is primarily the planning and production of television anime series, anime films, and short clips. Uh, the new company will also aim to provide a better business model for both studios, enabling profits to be more effectively distributed among the staff, creators, and those involved in the animation studio. Um, the company also plans to collaborate with various other studios aside from Cloverworks and Wit. Uh, Cloverworks producer Yuichi Fukushima and Wit Studio producer Tetsuya Nakatake are the representative directors of Joen. The company has an initial capital investment of 100 million yen, uh, which is about 786,000 US dollars. Um, Cloverworks and Wit Studio are currently collaborating on a little series you might have heard, heard of called Spy X Family. Um, this is interesting. Um, mainly because there have been a lot of other mergers in the anime, you know, mm -hmm. world. And so, like, we're seeing a little bit more of that centralization. I don't know if this is a merger, though, as much it's, as it's a whole new studio. It's not necessarily a merger. Um, I think some of the talent from those studios will go into it. Yeah. I think one of the surprising things to me is the budget. So $786,000 is not a is, lot. That is not enough to start a company. <laughs> like, um, like, maybe open a sandwich shop in, like middle of nowhere united states but definitely not to start an anime company yeah it's not a lot of money um so i don't know we're gonna have to keep an eye on this one and kind of see where it goes uh, listen if it works out everyone involved in that sounds amazing i would yeah. love to see what they come up with absolutely and hopefully they live up to the idea that they are going to effectively distribute the profits yes that's also really great yeah if 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 true. <laughs> uh, next up, the ever ubiquitous Kadokawa has announced that we are not only getting a third season of Konosuba, Konosuba! but also Konosuba! an anime adaptation of the spin-off manga Konosuba and Explosion on This Wonderful World. Um, <laughs> the, core, the core cast will be returning for the third season and also the spin-off. And as you might have guessed from its name, the spin-off season will feature Megumin and her Crimson Magic Clan. Um, super psyched about this. Can't yes, wait. I'm going to rewatch Konosuba in the meantime because I'm super excited and I've been waiting for this for a long time. I think every once in a while, like, we'll just look at each other and be like, you know, I miss Konosuba. Mm -hmm. It's just a nice show to have around. It's got the right mix of all the stuff that I like. Yeah, it's, it's fun. And I just want to see Aqua do dumb stuff. Of course. And, and throw up rainbows. Yes, throwing up rainbows... Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited for it. There's been a lot of stuff that has come out in the meantime since season two ended. We've had video games. We've had a movie. Mm -hmm. um, but really what I wanted is this new season. Yeah. I'm glad it's coming. Um, and finally, uh, for my little news segment today, uh, we've been keeping a pretty watchful eye over the scrappy underdog streaming service High Dive this season. And at their panel at Anime Boston, they announced some entries into their summer simulcast slate. First, we have Tokyo Mew Mew New, which is a brand new anime adaptation of the Tokyo Mew Mew manga series. The anime follows Ichigo Mom uh, Momomiya, a girl who transforms into Mew Ichigo, which means strawberry, um, with the power of Iriomote Leopard Cat to save Earth from parasitic chimera anima aliens. This sounds familiar. It does have an anime already. Um, there yeah. is there is an anime that came out in the early 2000s, I believe. So this is kind of like a... I don't know if it's a remake. I didn't see the original, but... I feel like I've seen this DVD box art at Suncoast Video yeah. back in the early, early aughts. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, this is something, if you're familiar with, to keep an eye out for on High Dive. The next show in High Dive's lineup comes to us in the form of Is It Wrong to Try to Pick Up Girls in a Dungeon Season 4? Yeah, this is a pretty easy get, considering that High Dive also is currently streaming the first three seasons of the show, alongside its OVAs and the movie. Um... So if that's a show you've been following... It's you can, a big name. It's a good get. Yeah, it used to be on Crunchyroll. Crunchyroll dropped it um, at the end of March. Um, so yeah, if you want to watch it, you know where to go. Uh, third, we have the anime adaptation of Kotoyama's Call of the Night manga. Uh, Viz Media is releasing the manga in English, and it describes the story thusly. Um, Nanakusa is a vampire, and that's okay with human ko. He wants to be one too, but transformation doesn't come that easily. When Nazuna invites Ko to spend the night at her place in an abandoned building, he is stoked. But then he awakens to kisses on his neck with a little too much bite to them. Is it just the delicious taste of his blood that makes her meet him night after night for late night adventures, conversations, and naps? Or something else? Then, when a cute girl from Yamori's past shows up and competes for his affection, uh, for his attention, his budding relationship with the undead is put to the test. Mm. Um... I actually started reading the manga for this one, but it kind of didn't hold my attention for some reason. It I ended up dropping it. It does seem a little harem-y, uh, but I'm curious to see how the anime holds up, so I'll probably check this one out when it comes out. Vampires um, are so hot right now. He's so hot right now. Vampires are huge. They've been huge for a while, too, because like we've had... You know, we had um, like Mars Red. And, Mars Red, uh, Leica, the, the Cosmonaut. No yeah. yeah. Um you know, so vampires. It's a thing. <laughs> Vampire in the Garden. <laughs> yeah, Vampire in the Garden. We just watched one. Um, but uh, yeah, the next up is going to be, uh, you know, Call the Night. Uh, finally, High Dive confirmed that they will be streaming Made in Abyss, the Golden City of the Scorching Sun, which not only has just the most awesome name ever, but is the second season of the Made in Abyss anime series. Um, this is another easy get for High Dive as they are also streaming the first season of the show as well as the compilation films and the theatrical movie. Um, so, High Dive, it's I where mean, you're made listen, to miss. With these gets, like, I'm going to keep staying subscribed to High Dive, which is great because I can't wait to cancel my Funimation subscription and just have Crunchyroll in. There you go. And that. Um, but yeah, this is super exciting. High Dive, you know, making a move for that mainstream kind of power vacuum left behind by Funimation. Um, I think they kind of hit it out of the park this season with your boy Kong Ming and I'm Quitting Heroing and um, The Executioner and Her Way of Life. Yeah. Uh, all have been really great shows that I've been keeping up with. So, um, you know, good to see that they've got some big names coming out next season too. Um, but with all that being said, you know, um, before we kind of move on into our meat and potatoes, why don't you go ahead and let us know what you think. Are you going to be watching any of these shows on High Dive? Are you forming a union at Real Workplace? What do you think about what's going on? Are you excited for the Gundam movie? Let us know on Twitter and Instagram at bestboys underscore pod, or send us an email at thebestboyspod at gmail.com. Yeah, Carlos. <laughs> I think that's Carlos for It's Time for Meat and Potatoes. Yori! Yowie! It's the Yuri and Yowie episode. Yeah, we did it! Yes! Bing, bing, bing. It's exciting, it's very fun. We did a lot of research for this one. Um, yeah, it, so I think 
to start off, we should set a few ground rules. Yes. Um, we're going to try and keep this kind of to the confines of Yuri and Yaoi, um, specifically. Uh, first up, we're going to talk about the history of um, homosexuality in Japan. Uh, we're not really going to touch on gender identity too much. Some of it's a little important to the story uh, of the history. Um, you'll see when you get to that part. Um, and we also won't dive too much into the uh, deep spectrum of uh, LGBTQ+. Instead, we're primarily going to focus on kind of the more bog-standard homosexuality. <laughs> as we go through the history as well, we're going to give kind of just like a basic overview of the past and a little bit of where we ended up today. Um, on another episode, we will have to get into more of modern gay culture in Japan, as that is also very varied and kind of deserves its own episode. Um, so... Are you ready, best boy Justin? I'm ready. Let's do this. It's time for the history of homosexuality in Japan. So Japan is not well known for the acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, as recently as March of 2021, gay marriage was illegal. Last March, the law was struck down by the Japanese court, uh, but did but do not mistake that as the legalization of gay marriage. Uh, it just says that it is no longer like specifically illegal. Um, it will require separate legislation in Japan, and many es experts estimate that that is at least several years away. This wasn't always the case in the land of the rising sun. As you would probably assume, it wasn't really until the Western influences on Japanese culture that people really started demonizing non-heteronormative relationships. But we'll come to, back to that later. To begin our gay romp through history, most texts point back to Japan uh, once as being a predominantly Shinto religion-based society, uh, basically as far back as 1000 BC. Shinto isn't specifically pro-homosexuality, but it's not really against it either. Shinto had no code of morals and seemed to regard sex as a natural phenomenon uh, to be enjoyed with few inhibitions. Basically, the idea was sex was natural, Go enjoy it however you like. Um, there were some, even some literature references to homosexual relationships from this time, but none of it's like particularly brazen, and scholars kind of point out there's very little to differentiate between sexual relationships in these stories and close, like, no homo best bud friendships. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the the history on it's it's a little mixed. Um but eventually uh, Shintoism gave way to Buddhism. Now, Buddhism sees sex, sees sex very differently from Shinto. Um, Buddhism is basically about shedding all desires um, in all earthly forms. And sex with a man or a woman is essentially frowned upon. But for male monks, sex with a woman was like a complete failure to eliminate desire. But like sex with a boy was like an oopsie. Um... Oopsie doodle. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Gary Leup, uh, in his book, Male Colors, The Construction of Homosexuality in Tokugawa, Japan, um, which also is, it's important to point out that colors is kind of like a slang for uh, gay people in uh, Japan. Uh, but Gary says, uh, there, here their sexual involvement is seen as a result of their environment. Perhaps they share a cell with a monk who ordained them, although their, although their behavior is regarded as 
bad conduct, they are apparently not punished for it. Rather, the monk responsible for them is censured. I think it's important to, at this point, uh, to remember the difference in cultures and difference in times uh, have a big effect on just the way people experience the world compared to modern day. Like, there's a lot of things in this story that we're going to look at and be like, that's that's super weird. And back then, and, and I'm not saying that it's not, but back then a lot of these were like common practices and it was just kind of like, normalized mm-hmm. um which it's also important to point out too that it's not just a japanese or asian thing. yeah people always kind of look at this and go ha ah, look at how gross and weird the japanese are guess what yeah this shit happens in every culture all around the world yeah happens like in the west th- happened in rome this isn't like to point out and be like weird this is just kind of to shed the light on the history of where it came from like d- look into america's past with homosexuality is not pretty yeah that said uh it's fair to say that most of the buddhist male on male relationships were pederastic uh i struggled with whether or not this was important to the history of homosexual relationships but there is a lot of documentation on this and this is what a lot of scholars point to as what was kind of commonly acknowledged as, uh, you know, known homosexuality, right? This is the thing that we have documentation on. That said, it is important to recognize, especially with a modern eye, that this was in fact pedophilia. This was adult monks having relationships with uh, prepubescent monks mostly. The boys were not necessarily viewed as male yet. Prepubescent boys were seen as wakashu, or a third gender. They had the anatomy of a man, but the feminine features of a woman. Once puberty was complete, they would finally be considered a man. Wakashu have a particular historic place in the history of samurai. Elder samurai would often take an apprentice who was prepubescent. They would provide for the boy and train them until they became a full-fledged samurai when they had fully grown. In return, the boy would provide sexual pleasure for the samurai. This would continue until the boy came of age when it was expected to stop. At this point, both men were free to take on new wakashu. Wakashu were not only a samurai thing. Uh, Remember the, like, Usui uh, situation from uh, where, like, he threw Tanjiro and everyone and Demon Slayer into, like, these brothels to go work? This was something that happened a lot to wakashu. They would... Uh, either be placed to work in a brothel catering to uh, rich male clientele or an even worse fate. They were sold into the theater. (gasps) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Outside of these practices, the Meiji era was in full swing. And as previously discussed, so was Western influence. A more hostile stance towards homosexuality was developing within the country. It wouldn't be until 1930 when we got our first openly gay writer. In 1931, Yoshia Nobuko mocked her heterosexual critics by writing, For 365 days of the year, I work from morning to night, from deadline to deadline, and in the process, I completely forget about the great defect in my life, the absence of a husband. Yoshia shared a lifelong relationship with a woman she loved at first sight a relationship she strove to legitimize in the eyes of the state. When she pursued the legal reform of same-sex marriage, many more women fought for, among other goals, labor protection, reproductive rights, and suffrage. 
They show they slowly achieved much of it, at least according to the letter of the law during the first few decades of the 20th century. The right to vote came later, including in the Constitution of 1946. Yoshia Nabuko is a badass. <laughs> yeah. She's like one of my favorite parts of this whole story. She's super cool. Um, things have gotten better for the LGBTQ plus community in very recent years. But on the whole, the country is behind many developed nations. It wasn't until 2005, Kanoko Otsuji, an assemblywoman from Osaka came out as a lesbian, making her the first openly gay politician. To this stage, the Japanese constitution, which was written during the American occupation after World War II, defines marriage as uh, between a man and a woman, and as such, gay marriage is still not recognized nationally. Uh, as such, an unconventional effort to, circumstance, uh, uh, to circumvent marriage restrictions, some gay couples have resorted to using the adult adoption system, which is known as FUTSO, an alternative means to becoming a family. This is actually now how Yoshia Nabuko and her partner Monma Chio legitimized their relationships in the eyes of the state. It is important to note, though, also that the Shibuya district in Tos Tokyo has passed a same-sex partnership certificate bill in 2015 to issue certificates to same couples that recognize them as partners equivalent to those married under the law. Similar partnerships are available in the Setagaya district in Tokyo, Sapporo in Hokkaido, Takarazuka in Hyogo, and 20 other localities as well as one prefecture, Ibaraki. Uh, it reminds me of the early 2000s when state by states they began legalizing gay marriage uh, until the whole country finally tipped over and hopefully will not revert back, depending on what the Supreme Court decides to do. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, hopefully this will happen for Japan in the near future. I mean, that would be nice. It would be nice if it happened everywhere. Yeah, I, I agree. But that's kind of the rough... Super quick history of homosexuality in Japan. Like I said, so much more to talk about when it comes to, like, the modern gay culture, um, into gender identity, and kind of all the various bits and spectrums of the LGBTQ plus uh, community. So, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, we have we'll, a lot more to, like, <laughs> kind of explore. I would like to do a cross-dressing episode at one point. Yeah, like, that in and of itself is its whole own thing, especially yeah. in anime. <laughs> the, cul the culture of cross-dressing in Japan is actually super interesting. Um, but, yeah. So, um, Best Boy Justin, why don't, now that we have this kind of basis, you tell us about Yuri and Yaoi. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess the first question is, what exactly are Yuri and Yaoi, and who are they for? Um, Yuri and Yaoi are manga and anime that features emotional, romantic, or sexual relationships between members of the same sex. Yuri for females, and Yaoi for males. Um, these stories can include graphic sexual depictions, but they don't have to by any means. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the target audience for Yuri and Yaoi, but first, let's break down some of the various names these types of stories are known by, because there are a couple other terms, each with their own slightly different connotations. Um, so let's talk about Yuri first, because Yuri is my favorite. Um, Yuri in Japanese means lily, uh, and is a common feminine name. Um, in, Japan in Japanese literature, white lilies tend to symbolize beauty and purity in women, and have become a sort of symbol for Yuri as a genre. Uh, the term dates back to 1976 when the editor of a gay men's magazine called Barazoku 
which means Ro uh, Rose Tribe, Bara is the name of a different type of gay media that we'll talk about later, um, used the term Yurizoku, which uh, means Lily Tribe, to refer to the female readers hmm. of the magazine. Um, by 1990, the term came to be associated with lesbian pornographic manga. Um, around this time, the term also began being used in the West. Over time, the meaning of the word began to shift from a strictly pornographic connotation to one that describes all manner of intimate love, sex, and emotional connections between women. Most great innovation comes from porn. This is true. Porn is great. Actually, fun fact, the reason why uh, DVDs won over Laserdisc and why Blu-ray won over uh, HD DVDs was the porn? the porn industry. Yep. Look at you guys go. <laughs> um... Another term you might have seen before, especially if you frequent your local Japanese bookstore, is girls' love, or GL. Um, this was adopted by Japanese publishers in the 2000s as a result of the popularity of the term boys' love. More on that later. Um, the last term we're going to discuss is one that you've probably never heard of unless you're a hardcore otaku. Um, the term is shoujo ai which literally means girls love, but in actual Japanese, as opposed to the phrase girls love, which is what's known as a wase ego, um, basically an expression that uses English words. Shoujo ai has different meanings between Western and Japanese users. Um, in the West, shoujo ai has come to describe yuri that uh, does not feature specific, uh, sexually explicit content. In Japan, however, it is not used in this context. Um, it, is, uh, it instead refers to pedophilic relationships between adult men and girls, uh, and is similar to the term lolicon. So you would not use this term to discuss yuri in Japan. Um, it's pretty much strictly a Western invention. Um, now let's talk about yaoi. Um, the word yaoi has a pretty interesting etymology. It actually began as an abbreviation. Uh, the word comes from the phrase yamani, yeah, yamanashi, ochinashi, iminashi which translates to no climax, no point, no meaning. Um, <laughs> this is, that's, that's my life, right? That's, that's actually the name of my autobiography. <laughs> there you go. Um, this is a reference to Yaoi's history as a product of doujinshi authors creating manga featuring their male-on-male -male ships from mainstream works. Um, the criticism stems from the idea that many of these works were focused solely on sex and often excluded plot and character development. And whether or not that's entirely true is up for debate, but that's kind of where it comes from. Um, Yaoi features homoerotic relationships between male characters and is generally created by women for women. Again, more on that later. Um, next, we have a phrase you may be less familiar with, um, and that is shonen ai, which is similar to um, shoujo ai, which we discussed earlier. Um, while yaoi is definitely the more popular term between the two when it comes to describing male-on-male -male romance stories in anime and manga currently, shonen ai was much more commonly used up until the late 1970s. Um, historically, the term, re uh, the term referred to pedophilic relationships between samurai and young boys, like we talked about a little bit earlier. However, by the early uh, 1970s, it had, it had come to describe a new genre of shoujo manga. Um, these stories featured romance between bishoujo, which literally translates to beautiful boys, um, but in this context refers to androgynous or effeminate male characters. Um, in the West, shonen ai is sometimes usually uh, used specifically to reference titles that focus on romance as opposed to explicit sexual content. Um, now, the term most commonly used in Japan and elsewhere in Asia to describe male-on-male -male stories marketed to women in anime and manga is boys' love, or BL. 
Uh, the term was first used in, the mag in a magazine called Image in 1991 and reached popularity in 1994 after it was adopted by the magazine Puff. Um, there are two other terms used for these types of media, though they're far less common. Uh, the first is Tanbi, um, which is usually used spe specifically for prose rather than anime and manga. So think some things like light novels and stuff like that. Um, and Juna which refers to a specific style of original works featured in the magazine of the same name. Uh, neither term is in wide use today, but you may come across it, so I figured I'd mention it. Um, now that we have uh, we know the various names that Yuri and Yaoi are known by and what they mean, let's talk a little bit about who Yuri and Yaoi are for. Um, casual observers often make the mistake of assuming that because Yuri and Yaoi feature same-sex relationships, uh, that they're marketed towards the LGBT community, and I thought the same thing before I developed an actual interest in Yuri, uh, and also Yaoi to a lesser extent, um, and in actuality, Yaoi is defined pretty specifically as male-on-male -male romance stories written by women for women. Um, while it's important to note that this is not always the case, there are plenty of gay men who enjoy yaoi, but they're not considered to be the target demographic for the genre. Um, there is actually a different term for male-on-male -male romance stories that are by gay men. For gay men, uh, it's called bara, which we mentioned earlier comes from the name of that magazine. Um, bara is uh, very different not only in target audience, but also content from yaoi. Uh, Yaoi often fe uh, features androgynous or effeminate characters, while Bara tends to feature larger, more muscular characters with a you know range of body hair and body fat types. Think more along the lines of like your kind of your bear figure, as opposed <laughs> to like kind of like the more um, with Yaoi you have like basically twinks, you know, yeah. um, or ikemen also, but. Um, Yaoi is kind of unique in its use of the uke-seme dynamic. Uh, the uke and seme concept is a defining feature of yaoi, as a matter of fact. Usually the seme, or the top, is stronger, more masculine, and pushy, while the uke, the bottom, is kind of the pursued character. So uh, more effeminate, um, more reticent, they're not necessarily active, you know, when it comes to pursuing the other, the other character involved. Uh, the uke may display traditionally female characteristics, such as cooking or sewing, um, but this is not a hard and fast rule, and readers tend to dislike uke who are too soft. So, like, you don't want your uke to be, like, you know, the ultimate, you know, feminine, you know, spectrum in a male's body, but, like, you know, there's a kind of a, a, a balance that they try to strike. Um, Yuri, on the other hand, is a little different. Uh, Yaoi tends to fit fairly neatly into the shoujo and jose demographics, and at its conception, Yuri did as well. Uh, currently, however, Yuri has a much wider demographic reach, and you can find not only shoujo and jose stories, but also shonen and seinen as well. Um, I tend to enjoy jose Yuri the most, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, as far as I've been able to find, there is no dedicated lesbian-targeted comparison to Yuri the way Yaoi has Bara, um, but if you're aware of it, please let me know, because I'm kind of curious about that, actually. Now that we know what it's called and who it's for, let's do a brief history of Yuri and Yaoi as genres before we talk about some examples that you can find today. The earliest roots of both Yuri and Yaoi can be traced to ancient times, but they began to emerge as in a recognizable form in the early 1900s. Uh, at this time, the gay stories that would evolve into Yaoi are being written as Tanbi, um, while the proto-Yuri genre known as Class S literature is being developed. 
Class S has a particularly interesting history, and one of its most influential figures is Nobuko Yoshia, the Japanese feminist and author that Best Boy Dan spoke about earlier. Um, she's such a fantastic and interesting figure and so important to the topic, so I wanted to talk about her a little bit as well. Um, some like little quick facts. She was one of the first Japanese women to emulate Western fashion in the 1920s uh, by cutting her hair short, which was scandalous at the time. Um, Yoshia defied expectations in a lot of other ways. She was one of the first Japanese women to own a car. She designed her own house and was the first Japanese woman to own a racehorse, which along with golf would become a lifelong passion of hers. Um, her literature often featured lesbian relationships and intense female friendships. She tended to explore two themes in her writing, friendship between women and the idea of the ideal male. Um, her work had a large influence on later shoujo manga in general, and Yuri specifically. Um, of all the things that I learned in researching for this episode, Yoshia is the topic that fascinates me the most, and I'm going to keep reading and learning about her life, and I'm totally going to read some of her books, because as we discussed earlier, she is a badass. Yeah, I would be totally down to do that. Absolutely. By the mid-1930s, depictions of same-sex relationships in literature had suffered a steep decline due to state censorship, with the entire Class S genre being banned entirely by the Japanese government. Class S is still a really cool name. It is. Um, by the 1970s, these stories had begun to reemerge and take on a form we might more readily recognize as modern Yuri and Yaoi. Um, the decade saw the popularization of a new generation of shoujo artists, and with them came Yaoi, uh, at this point known as Shonen Ai. Uh, most notable among these new sho uh, shoujo authors were the Year 24 group. Members of the group, including Keiko Takemiya and Moto Hagio, created works that depicted male homosexuality, such as In the Sunroom um, by Takemiya, which is considered the first work of the genre that would become known as Shonen Ai, uh, followed by Hagio's The November Gymnasium. Uh, the decade also saw the emergence of the Dodinchi subculture, and the first comicette would be held in 1975. Uh, Shonen Ai and the early yaoi works from doujinshi circles began to grow in popularity, and soon there were magazines de uh, dedicated to the genre, with the magazine June among the one of the earliest. Um, yaoi would enjoy a steady rise in popularity through the 80s and into the 90s. Um, and I just want to do a quick aside real quick, because I learned a little bit about Kamiket and like, researching for this uh, episode. Um, do you know what the population or the attendance for uh, New York City Comic Con tends to hover around uh i'm gonna go forty thousand. no oh you're way low anime nyc was fifty thousand. okay uh comic-con usually generates about two hundred and fifty thousand uh visitors per year wow wait regular comic-con comic or new york new york city comic wow comic in japan uh-huh five hundred thousand over wow. five hundred thousand every year it's huge yeah i was my mind was blown when i read that Meanwhile, That's a lot of people. we were like, Anime NYC was really crowded, and it was 53,000 <laughs> when we were there last year. Yeah. Um, but anyway, moving forward, um, Yuri, on the other hand, would go through what is referred to as its Dark Age during this time period. Um, this term does not refer only to its popularity, uh, which was still suffering from the decline in the 30s, but also the content and themes of the Yuri stories being told during this time. Yuri manga in the 70s and 80s tended to focus on tragic stories that um, centered around doomed relationships that ended in separation or death. Um, there are a couple theories about why this is the case. The one that seems most compelling to me is that the loss of Class S literature removed any literary context where lesbian relationships felt possible, um, along with strong patriarchal oppression leading to kind of a negative outlook on girl-on-girl -girl relationships. 
Um, by the 1990s, however, tragedies had declined in popularity in the literary and manga scene in Japan. Uh, a great leap forward for shoujo generally, uh, including Yuri specifically, was the release of Sailor Moon's anime adaptation in 1991, uh, which was the first mainstream anime and manga to feature a positive portrayal of a lesbian relationship with the coupling of Sailor Uranus and Sailor Neptune. Not in the United States, No, though. they were just cousins, nothing else. <laughs> um, with the success of Sailor Moon, anime and manga featuring intimate relationships between women began to enjoy a mainstream success by the mid-90s um there was also a revival of class s literature uh particularly in light novels so there you go it's back baby um all was not well in the yuri and yaoi world however as a storm was brewing on the horizon um yaoi continued to grow in popularity with 30 new magazines dedicated to it uh, to it being established between uh, 1990 and 1995 uh, works during this time tended to be more comedic in nature, and a larger proportion of shoujo manga began to incorporate yaoi elements. Uh, during the mid-90s, however, a years-long debate was sparked off known as the Yaoi Ronso, or the Great Yaoi Debate. Um, in, I lost a lot of good men there. Right? Uh, in an open letter in the feminist magazine Choisir, um, Japanese gay writer Masaki Sato criticized the genre as homophobic for not depicting gay men accurately heterosexist by reinforcing the misogyny of Japanese society and um, called fans of yaoi disgusting women who have a perverse in, uh, interest in sexual intercourse between men. Well, that's um, a little extreme. <laughs> yeah. This would actually lead to the adoption of the term fujoshi, which means rotten women. Uh, to describe women who were interested in yaoi, men are referred to as fudanshi. Brett translates to the same thing. Uh. Um which is actually, they, they kind of ended up owning that term. So now it's kind of like a way that the they yeah. refer to themselves now. Uh, doesn't um, uh, Miss Kobayashi refer to herself as that? Um, I don't remember. I don't, maybe at one point. It's actually, you're, you're, it's more common in uh, Wodakoi. In Wodakoi, oh, okay. the, the, the one, uh, the main female character refers to herself in, in that way. Okay. Um, but, um... Yaoi fans and artists consider, uh, countered that Yaoi is entertainment for women and does not seek to serve as a realistic depiction of homosexuality, uh, but rather as a refuge from the misogyny of Japanese society. Um, the scholarly debate continued for the remainder of the decade and resulted in the formation of the field of BL studies, which focuses on the study of BL and the relationship between women and BL. Um, so this is a thing, like, people, like, study at a scholastic level uh yeah i'm getting a degree in it yeah perfect <laughs> um it's actually one of the major sources for this uh for this episode that i read through was a thesis by someone who was <laughs> writing about um yuri specifically but also like bl and like this kind of stuff so there is like scholarly research out there um that pretty much brings us to where we are today. As the 2000s wore on, both Yuri and Yaoi began to expand in popularity throughout Japan and Asia, and increasingly the Western world as well. Um, Yuri began to expand demographically to include male audiences with an increased focus on moe characters. Um, Yuri and Yaoi began to expand thematically as well, with works appearing in the sci-fi, fantasy, and isekai realms. Um... As manga and anime made the jump to the internet, so too did its fans. Fan art, Twitter manga, and fan fictions led to an explosion of Yuri and Yaoi into the form that we recognize it in today. 
Now, this is only a brief overview of Yuri and Yaoi. There is so much more we could talk about if only we had the time, like how David Bowie is partially responsible for how Yaoi characters look today, or how the Senpai Kohai relationship began to mold itself to the butch femme dynamic in Yuri over the years. We could do a whole episode on how Yuri magazines led to the retroactive inclusion of certain work into the Yuri canon, like Sailor Moon. Um, and all the arguments that this led to, but for practicality's sake, we'll leave the history of Yuri and Yaoi here for now and move on to a few examples of the genre. Yeah, so we have a few shows that, I, I'll be honest, like Yuri and Yaoi are not like my biggest genres, um, but I have a couple of entries in there that I like and, and want to share with people. Yeah. Um, before we dive into it, uh Best Boy Jamie has a, a hot take on Banana Fish, uh, which I have heard is a wonderful um, yaoi show. I mean, the the, uh, the manga was apparently incredibly influential to, to the yaoi scene when it came out. So let's hear it, Best Boy Jamie. Banana Fish. Uh, I will first say that after some time watching it and watching parts of it more than once, it might be in my top five now of anime. It is... God, where to start with this? Okay, so... <laughs> takes place in New York City with teenage street gangs. And the main character is named Ash. And his older brother is in the military. Comes back from Iraq. It's not entirely clear whether this is Iraq 1 or Iraq 2 during, like, the early 2000s. It's a little bit confusing whether it's, like early 90s or early 2000s although to be fair Iraq and a lot of the stuff in the anime it could be either of those and they're very similar things that were going on in both of those times so his brother comes back uh, is a little messed up and from his Iraq experience and then he dies and his little brother who is Ash starts to investigate his death He's also the leader, uh, leader of this little street gang. And it kind of spirals from there. He also, there's another character who is a Japanese teenager who comes over from Japan. His older brother and Ash's older brother were both soldiers in Iraq together. And the Japanese kid's older brother is like a reporter. So they start to investigate Ash's older brother's death while still trying to manage the street gang that he's part of and in the process of in investigating all that they basically uncover a huge drug conspiracy that includes the u.s military the government the mafia street gangs all over new york and buried into all of this is a uh, gay romance between ash and this uh Japanese teenager uh, whose name for some reason I'm drawing a blank on right now but the reason why I love it so much it is one of the most grounded in reality like anime that I've ever watched also animation wise even when you have slice of life anime or like crime anime there's usually something in the animation especially in slice of life anime like comedy ones where they exaggerate the animation in some way this doesn't have any of that. It also has incredible fight sequences, like incredible writing, incredible drama in it. The voice acting is great. It's like everything in it is great. 
Uh, so yeah, if you haven't watched Banana Fish, it is only available on Amazon. It's one of those anime that uh, uh, Amazon Prime just happened to pluck one of those. And this is, yeah, it's one of my top five. So if you haven't watched Banana Fish, you should definitely watch Banana Fish. Wow, I'm sure that was amazing. Um, <laughs> he's recording it tomorrow. What, you mean he didn't record it right now while we were recording this? Yeah. Sorcery. Um, so uh, one of the shows I want to talk about, which is not maybe necessarily a Yuri or Yaoi show, it has elements of it to it, mm -hmm. is uh, this like really random show that Best uh, Person Cat and I once watched called Kiss Him Not Me. Um, and the basic premise of this show is like the main, uh, female lead is like this overweight, like super otaku, uh, who, uh, gets so sad that her like, uh, main male love interest in her favorite, uh, yaoi show, uh, <laughs> dies that she like stops eating for like three weeks and loses like a bunch of weight. Uh, I wish I could and do that. <laughs> and becomes, like, super, like, sexy, like, skinny sort of thing. Uh, and all these boys become interested in her. And uh, she just, like, wants it to be, like, her favorite yaoi show and just wants them to all kiss each other. Um, so she tries to turn her life into a yaoi show. Uh, so if you like the elements of it, it it's really funny. Uh, apparently the manga ends up in a really great place, too. Okay, cool. Um, we'll probably never get a second season of this show, though, sadly. I mean, you can only hope for so much. Yeah. Um, I also want to discuss Yuri on Ice, which is not a Yuri, it's a Yaoi. Um, that's kind of one of the silly things about it. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, Yaoi on Ice would be way weirder. <laughs> it definitely would be, but it would be accurate, because that's basically what this show is. Uh, if you haven't heard on of Yuri on Ice, I don't know where you've been. It's a huge show. It was kind of a breakout hit five years ago, four yeah. years ago. Oh, okay, maybe it's been a while. Yeah. Um, but it it basically is the story of Victor Nikivarov and Yuri Kotsky and their kind of love together and their relationship with uh, figure skating, professional figure skating. It's a phenomenal show, top to bottom. Music, animation, story, characters, Top everything. to bottom? Top. <laughs> it's a phenomenal story, top and bottom. <laughs> um, Puns. Yeah, and then kind of lastly is Kobayashi, which is, is kind of like... Yuri Light. Um, there's a and there's a little bit of Yaoi in there too. I was actually thinking about this when we were when I was reading this list, and I realized that Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid was my first Yuri show. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, when I think about it, yeah, um, because I didn't develop an interest in Yuri until a little bit after I first um, watched that show. So, yeah, but I mean, if you have listened to this podcast with any regularity, you will know how much we tout. Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid. Yeah, great show. Wonderful show. Absolutely worth a watch. Uh, next up, we have uh, Other Side Picnic, uh, which is a really interesting Yuri mystery show. So basically, you have the two main characters. They're like college students, and they kind of, um, in their own ways, stumble upon this way to basically open a door into the quote-unquote other side. Um, and to like go into this kind of eerie alternate reality where there's monsters and ghosts and like um, there are phenomena that can kill you if you step on them and they're invisible. Uh, and the scariest thing about it is that you can walk through a doorway 
into the other side without even knowing it out of nowhere. Um, but ultimately, it kind of boils down to the, the this kind of budding relationship between these two girls as they kind of try to solve a, a mystery relating to, um, you know, a disappearance of one of their uh, close acquaintances. Um, and I really like this show and I can't wait for season two. Um, the second show that I want to talk about is Sasaki and Miyano. This is a more recent show. It just aired last season. Um, it's kind of an interesting take on the yaoi dynamic. You kind of, um, it really kind of turns the, uh, uke and seme dynamic on its head where you have like the, um, the uke is actually, he's a fudanshi. He's like a, a kid who's really interested in yaoi manga and he's also gay. Um, and he ends up like kind of pursuing this like kind of more jock friendly, um, popular dude who kind of wants to be friends with him and ends up also getting into BL manga. Um, so it's kind of a really interesting and weird take on the, the, uh, the whole yaoi dynamic. And I think you might enjoy it. Um, the last one I'm going to talk about is Bloom Into You. Um, which is a very popular uh, manga and anime. I haven't watched the anime, and I'm in the middle of reading the manga right now. Um, it's a really interesting kind of... Uh, how would you describe it? It's a rom-drama. Um, so you've got basically this kind of romance between the two main characters. Um, but the one of them has like a lot of trauma with regards to you know same-sex relationships... Um, so she's always keeping the other one at arm's length and it's a really interesting and engaging kind of story. Um, and I've heard that the anime is also really good. It's airing it's on a high dive. Yeah. It's been on my list for a while to watch. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of just like a little, um, a little list of some Yuri and Yaoi shows you could check out if you were interested. Um, you can also, you know, <laughs> if you want manga, check it out. Like if you go like uh, at our local manga shop, our local Japanese Kinoko, bookstore, yeah. They have an entire section dedicated to BL and GL. Um, you can find it. You can find it online. Um, so check it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, let us know what you think. What did we miss? You know, what did we cover that you might have been learning for the first time? What's your favorite Yuri or Yaoi show? Um, hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at bestboys underscore pod. Or send us an email at thebestboyspod at gmail.com. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Yeah, uh, let us know if, if there's any other ones that we should uh, check out. Um, but thank you for joining us, Best Buds, and uh, have a wonderful Pride Month. Live your best lives. Be true to yourselves. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Bye.